Today on Against the Grain. Atlanta is the pivotal city for reasons cultural, economic, and political. And so the changes that the city and metropolitan area have undergone since the 1990s have been consequential, deepening class and racial inequality. As Dan Immergluck points out, these shifts were not the inevitable product of market forces, but the result of political decisions. He lays out the lessons that can be drawn from the gentrification of Atlanta. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Since the 1990s, the city of Atlanta and the area around it have undergone a telling transformation, marrying gentrification at the center of the city with sprawl on the outer rings. The result has been displacement for poor and working-class people in the historically black city. And it's a tale of opportunities lost, one which Dan Immergluck documents in Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. He's Professor of Urban Studies at Georgia State University. Dan, I wonder if you could remind those of us who don't live in the South of the cultural and economic importance of Atlanta. Atlanta is, to some degree, the the heart of the Deep South, uh, both culturally and economically. Um, It's uh, a a very fast-growing metropolitan area, and it has been really uh, since the 1980s. Um, continues to be. It is sometimes uh, known as the Black Mecca. Um, Other cities claim that title too, but uh, it really is a very important city to the black population of the country. Culturally, uh, it it is the home of some of the most well-reputed historically black universities and colleges in the country. and you know the metropolitan area is over a third black. Uh, it is one of the largest black populations of any metropolitan area, and uh, one of the fastest growing. So it's a very important city historically, um, and and today, particularly for uh, its impact culturally uh, in terms of the black population. Obviously, music, culture, film. Um, increasingly important uh, out of Atlanta. Can you tell us about the history of the city itself? And since we're going to be discussing economic and racial exclusion, what is the history of um, exclusion and segregation in in the city uh, going back to its early days? Atlanta has always been, really, since it's Uh, at least since it became kind of an appreciable city um, around the turn of the century, uh, turn of the 20th century, has ebbed and flowed in terms of its racial composition, but always a substantial black population. Um, The city was founded um, before the Civil War, of course, uh, and obviously suffered uh, during the Civil War. Um, but really started to grow appreciably well after the Civil War in the late 19th century. And in the early 20th century, um, again, urbanizing city, uh, drawing both whites and blacks from rural communities into the city, uh, an important railroad intersection, and really to some degree the gateway to the south. In fact, it was called the Gate City for quite a while. Um, as trains from uh, the north had to pass through Atlanta to go south. Um, And in 1906, in particular, a very critical point, there was a substantial violent and deadly anti-black massacre in the city that really accelerated or kind of furthered segregation in the city as blacks were fearful of locating in white neighborhoods or near white folks. And whites, you know, also uh, self-segregated into whiter communities. Um, The city is very famous for uh, 
certain black communities, including the Auburn Avenue, Sweet Auburn neighborhood, where Dr. King and others were very prominent, um, but also other early black suburbs uh, quite near the city uh, formed before World War II. Atlanta was really one of the leading and early cities where black suburbanization occurred. And then in the 1950s, many of those suburbs were annexed into the city along with a large white community. And the real purpose of that annexation was for the white governance of the city, the white mayor to maintain uh, electoral power after blacks got the right to vote in the Democratic primary, which they had been denied until the 1940s. Um, but the other thing the city is very famous for uh, during the 19th century in terms of race and housing is the style of governance of the city. Uh, Atlanta is famous, still famous, for the notion of a black-white urban regime uh, structure where white and corporate power are dominant, but basically have co-opted or consolidated power with the, the subordinate black power structure, often led by, uh, historically, by ministers and others, so that you know, blacks negotiated for certain benefits, including certain civil rights benefits before federal civil rights laws. Um, but whites really maintained power over the city in terms of governance even when in the 1970s um, Maynard Jackson became mayor, the first black mayor of the city, even past then, and I would argue still to today, this black-white regime uh, maintains power so that there is at least titular black political power both in the mayor's office and in the city council. But the amount, of, the real substance of that power still seems to uh, subordinate itself to the white corporate structure, much of which is very tied to the real estate industry. Um, and so even in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, when blacks asked for more housing or better housing, they were, instead of kind of more radical requests, that were to some degree more present in the open housing movements in the North, the black power structure accepted highly segregated subdivision developments that were in certain parts of town, often not considered the best parts of town. And city planners in the city actually identified new neighborhoods that would be planned for black communities, even though racial zoning, which the city had tried back in the 20s, was outlawed um, by the courts, they effectively practiced a type of racial zoning through identifying these neighborhoods that would be for black residents. And the kind of open housing and fair housing movements that became more popular in some northern highly segregated cities like Detroit and Chicago and others really didn't occur in Atlanta. And instead, it was this bargaining, this negotiated racial transition, as they called it, that became dominant. So increasingly over time, uh, the city became more and more segregated. Um, and the civil rights activism that really was in, in significant ways centered in Atlanta because of Dr. King and others, while it focused on voting rights and access to schools and access to public facilities and private facilities, it really kind of stayed away from housing. Housing was not seen as a primary area of contention, but much more an area of negotiation as part of this regime governance. Well, you argue that there are key moments when long-lasting decisions are put into motion, and then they have sort of an outsized impact. And the 1990s generally is a time when gentrification really started to heat up in Atlanta. I wonder if you could tell us about that and particularly the effect of holding the Olympics or doing all the courting that leads to hosting the Olympics 
in that city, in Atlanta, in 1996. Yeah, the, the Olympics was really a, a fulcrum uh, during this inflection point. Uh, to some degree, it may not have been so much the Olympics as themselves as, as what others and, and I have called the Olympification of the city, this broader effort to revitalize the city uh, in the wake of a couple of decades of white flight, uh, declining population, increasing poverty, and really seeing the city seeing itself as a shrinking city, as a declining city. And so in the 90s around the Olympics, and remember the Olympics were won well, you know, in the early 90s, well before the actual Olympics, but even well before the Olympics, the committees and structures that were built around the Olympics were really built to do much more than the Olympics. They were built to transform the city into one that it was much more attractive to middle and upper income folks, and particularly to white folks. Um, and so the, basically the redevelopment of uh, neighborhoods such as uh, Buttermilk Bottoms on the uh, near downtown into the Civic Center, um, basically demolition of large amounts of, of older housing, um, and then culminating really in the early 90s um, with the restructuring of the Public Housing Authority. The Atlanta Public Housing Authority was severely troubled in the 80s and early 90s, um, one of the weaker public housing authorities in the country, but they had already been disinvesting from public housing, partly because the federal government was disinvesting from public housing, um, but they were also managing it very poorly. And it, the, the new leadership of the city and the housing authority, it was Mayor Campbell, but really preceding Mayor Campbell, um, had shifted to uh, a, a notion of let's reuse this space for a, a different residential base, uh, a more affluent residential base. So particularly when federal money started becoming available to redevelop or improve public housing, the choice was to demolish the family housing and then sometimes redevelop on those sites but in a way that heavily favored middle and upper income residents, calling it mixed income housing, but with really very little, uh, much smaller amounts of low income housing. Traditional public housing residents would be located in those places. And the residents, the low income residents were mostly that, that had not already left because the housing authority was doing such a bad job. So many of these, Many of these prod, uh, developments were most were largely vacant or significantly vacant because the housing authority had stopped maintaining them. Um, but the residents who were remaining were given vouchers, um, and you know basically you get a voucher and you get one or two months to find housing wherever. Um, and the places that were redeveloped were often in the most central key locations in the city. The first one being the Techwood project, which was right next to Coca-Cola headquarters and right next to Georgia Tech and right next to the Midtown neighborhood, which is now the most, really the, the, the most desirable neighborhood in the city in terms of affluent folks, one of, one of the most desirable and probably the, the most significantly developed since the Olympics. Um, and then other developments like the East Lake Meadows on the east side, again, followed by large scale gentrification in and around that project. Um, Grady Homes, which is now, it, which is in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood, which has largely been gentrified. The places that were not redeveloped at all um, were largely on the outskirts of the city, the less valuable real estate and the Public Housing Authority either sold some of those properties off or has failed to redevelop them. So th what, what I talk about is that the public housing redevelopment was really a real estate play, a public-private partnership to 
unleash the market power of these close-in neighborhoods and clear the way for gentrification that followed. Right, and one of the points that you emphasize in the book is although these market forces were unleashed, they were done as a result of political decisions that were made by local government and those in positions of power. I should say that I'm speaking with Dan Immergluck. He teaches urban studies at Georgia State University. We're discussing Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So to clarify what you've been describing starting in the 1990s, it seems that a, a geographic shift took place within Atlanta in terms of where the poor were located and where the wealthy lived. Can you lay that out explicitly for us, a shift away from simply, I guess as it's known, the poor and the core? Yes. So the city um, from 1990 to 2019, just to put some figures on it, went from being more than two-thirds black, uh, 67% black, to less than half black, about 48% black, it went from being only about a quarter of the adult population being college educated to well over half being college educated. And maybe most significantly, while in 1990 the median income of the city was just a little bit over half, about 60% of the median income of the region, so that the city was much lower income than the suburbs as a whole. By 2019, the city's median income was actually significantly higher than the metropolitan median, so substantially higher than the suburbs. So it was this, yes, this inversion, as some folks call it, this great inversion. But it wasn't just, uh, as you suggest earlier, the product of people wanting to live in the city. It wasn't just this organic gentrification process. It was a heavily planned and incentivized process by, you know, starting really, I think, with this concerted effort around the Olympics in the 90s to redevelop poor neighborhoods in ways that really involved a lot of displacement. And then to some degree bookended uh, in the 2000s by this large redevelopment project called the Atlanta Beltline which does run through many uh, lower income black neighborhoods and was a major redevelopment project. So this about 10 year, 12 year period, I, I describe as really fundamental to this quote unquote turnaround of the city, but it was co continually a process of political decision, policy decision, financial resources, both subsidy resources from city government, but also philanthropic resources, all kind of geared towards reshaping and remaking the city in a way that was consistent with a vision of gentrification. Well, can you tell us in more detail what public subsidies look like in the context of a place like Atlanta? You know, what are the ways that policymakers are able to foster choices that end up benefiting the affluent. Yes, um, I talk in the, in, in the book about a number of them um, and they, they fundamentally revolve around the property tax system and the use of property taxes, both through explicit subsidies to firms and real estate developers who are doing developments in the city but also through the broader tax structure that benefits particularly corporate, um, large-scale corporate property owners. So the first one is the, the development authorities, which many cities have development authorities that are authorized by state government. And in Atlanta, though, we have two, one governed by the city, one governed by Fulton County, that it covers, Fulton County covers most of Atlanta and they compete with each other. So if a firm expresses interest into moving into the city or expanding in the city or a developer has a project, they both uh, are 
considered as possible sources of subsidy. And the problem there is that creates, because the development authorities generate income for themselves based on projects that they subsidize, it creates competition to offer these developers the best deal. And so it's a race to the bottom to give them the biggest tax break. Uh, and, and what that means is that they get uh, usually 10-year tax abatements that cover about half of their taxes, that reduce their taxes by about 50%, uh, to develop a project. And, it, and the, if you look at a map of where these subsidies have gone, particularly since the foreclosure crisis, they've gone to the Midtown neighborhood, which as I mentioned earlier is now that, well, the, really the hottest sub-market in, in, in Atlanta in terms of real estate development. They go around the east side of the city where the Beltline is and been developed most, uh, in, is in its most advanced stage. They go to Buckhead, which is a, a very affluent part of the city. So. They're racing to give incentives to the hottest neighborhoods in the city where these firms want to be already um, and don't need subsidy to be encouraged to be there. In fact, those firms are, yes, they're bringing jobs into the city, but those jobs, especially since a lot of the jobs that have been created in the city in the last 10 years have been high paid jobs, those are new residents who are bidding up rents and so increasing land values and housing costs. And so if anything, they're to some degree imposing costs on the city. And the folks who have to bear the brunt of those costs are low-income renters. Um, another way is, and an even bigger way that this problem happens, is that generally the county severely undertaxes large commercial properties. So a number of studies have been done by the city itself, by the county itself, and by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper that show most of these large kind of trophy commercial properties are being assessed on taxes at close to half their value, whereas they should be paying, you know, if it's a, if it's a $50 million building, they're paying as if the building was only worth $25 million. And they're supposed to pay at close to market value, be assessed at close to market value. So it's a severe under taxation problem. Small property owners, those of you know a few hundred thousand dollars, are assessed appropriately, the studies show, are assessed close to their market value. So it's basically a universal subsidy, which is even worse than the targeted subsidies. Um, and then the third is when property values started going up a lot after the foreclosure crisis in 2015, 2016, and then in 2017, the county reassessed all properties and people were seeing large increases in their property values because the values had gone up. So they complained, homeowners complained, and the politicians' response was to offer significant rollbacks in assessed values on homeowners' properties. Well, what that does is it shifts, it reduces the property tax to homeowners, and it's proportional to how big your home is, so or how valuable. So the people with a million dollar and a half, million and a half dollar homes are saw their property taxes cut back severely. Meanwhile, renters saw no such relief. So we saw this three-part property tax dysfunction operate. And what that meant was that here's a city whose land values had increased tremendously from 2011 to 2020. There were single-family parcels in the city in 2011 in many neighborhoods on the south side, the, the, black, the majority black neighborhoods on the south side, that were selling for $20,000 a piece. Those same parcels are now selling for two and three hundred thousand dollars. So you had land values going up by a factor of ten in some neighborhoods, yet the property tax revenue did not go up anywhere near that. It went up some, but what we have is a gentrifying city where the benefits of gentrification have just accrued to the landowners and particularly to the large landowners. And the folks who have been hurt the most which are low-income renters, have gotten almost no benefit out of this growth.
and we'll talk in a moment about paths not taken. But I should say that I'm speaking with Dan Immergluck about his book, Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. That's published by UC Press. Dan Immergluck teaches urban studies at Georgia State University. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, you were talking about renters, how renters in so many ways bear the brunt of these giveaways that the city of Atlanta has given to the wealthy and to those who own real estate. I wanted to ask you about the state government. How does the government at the state level shape the choices that are made in Atlanta for good or for ill, including things around, say, rent control, which would you know directly benefit renters? It's an excellent question. It's it's a it's a key theme of the book is Atlanta is in in other sunbelt cities that are growing like this are in a, a severe are severely bound by their state government regimes. Um, you know, it's funny because you know, most of these sunbelt metros, Nashville, Atlanta, New Orleans, um, Phoenix they're, they're, you know, state governments are quite conservative. They're very property rights oriented. Um, they talk about local control, but as I read in the book, they seem to be in favor of local control when it comes to, you know, redeveloping low-income properties into high-income properties, um, which causes displacement. They seem to be in favor of local control when it involves giving local governments redevelopment powers and the ability to raise money, the ability to create local police forces, the ability to exclusionary zone, all those things seem fine to them in terms of local control. But when it comes time to can this local government create a fair housing law that says you have to accept housing vouchers or God forbid rent stabilization or rent control, you know, then no local control. So it's local control for some, but when you're a landowner, it seems like local control works, but when you're a renter, it doesn't. So it's, it's very, I mean, I mean, renters lack power in all states generally, but in red states, especially, they really lack power to do things even at a local government level. So to me, what needs to happen is we have to build tenant power in Sunbelt metros and in Sunbelt states, but we also have to get local government leaders to recognize that it's in their political best interest, and this also depends on tenant power, to advocate for local control on issues that benefit tenants not just local control on things that benefit property owners and developers. So it's, it's a huge lift. It, to me, is the long-term lift. I mean, I think we can fix some things at the city level in places like Atlanta, but ultimately we need to build political power to change things at the state level to first allow local governments to be more progressive on their own Ideally, that would then lead to, you know, perhaps rent stabilization at the statewide level. We were speaking earlier about certain inflection points where policies were put in place or forces were put into motion with long-term consequences for Atlanta and the region. I wonder if you could talk about the aftermath of the 2007 global financial crisis, which was as you write, such an inflection point that in the wake of that crisis and the massive foreclosures that it led to, there was an opportunity that was lost when land prices fell so spectacularly. Yes, uh, it really is. A, it, it, it's a, a story of missed opportunities in so many cities. Um, and Atlanta may be the, the kind of paradigmatic case, meaning we may have missed some of the largest opportunities. But yes, I mean, for example, um, with this Beltline project that I talked about, I showed in 2007 that even before the foreclosure crisis, from 
2003 to 2005, property values around the Beltline, this big redevelopment project, just, just the talk of the Beltline was causing property values to rise because speculators were buying up properties. And so property values rose and then the crash came and they fell back down. So it was almost like the folks in the city and at the Beltline had a second bite at the apple. They had like like a do-over. Like, oops, we should have bought a bunch of land before we started developing this Beltline thing. But now the land values have fallen back down, so maybe we can do it now. Well, nope, they didn't do that. They still refused to kind of put land acquisition and affordable housing on the front burner when they knew that if this project came to be, it would generate lots of, again, speculation and higher rents and higher prices. And sure enough, that's what happened. And instead of front-loading affordable housing, they front-loaded trail development and park development, the very things that caused the property values to rise. And then uh, in the region as a whole, with the foreclosure crisis, we had this flood of foreclosures, both in the first in the city, but then in the suburbs, especially in diverse and um, majority black suburbs. And those properties started flowing to investors. And we saw this, but still saw this accumulation of bank owned properties, foreclosed properties. And what happens instead of kind of capturing those for future affordable housing, we have the federal government in the in the particularly through the Federal Reserve System put out a paper in early in January of 2012 saying hey there's this huge number of foreclosed properties on the balance sheets of banks and subprime lenders maybe we should you know the paper actually said we could encourage low wealth homeowners to buy these homes because the prices are really low now this was january of 2012 or we could encourage large-scale wall street backed institutional buy to rent investors to buy to buy these foreclosed homes and the paper explicitly says we should do the latter and so within weeks of that paper uh, Warren Buffett is touting, is saying, well, if I had enough money right now, I would buy 200,000 single-family homes. And then all these uh, private equity firms start basically waving around this Federal Reserve white paper and using it to raise capital to buy homes. And sure enough, by the end of 2012, uh, places like Atlanta, cities in Florida, Phoenix, Sunbelt metros are seeing the surge of institutional buyers sucking up these vacant homes. And if we had more federal resources, we did have a program that was in 2008, but it was not a lot of money and it wasn't well geared towards permanently acquiring homes for rental properties. It was more really geared towards flipping properties to homeowners. But if we had a serious federal effort to either allow low wealth, predominantly black homeowners to buy homes um, or and and not or and basically buy up a large set of those homes for permanently affordable rental housing, uh, we could have you know, created this large scale stock of rental housing in cities like Atlanta. Instead, um, tens of thousands of homes in Metro Atlanta flowed to investors like Blackstone, Colony Capital, and others. And we've seen the results of that. Homeownership rates down significantly in many black suburban neighborhoods and many diverse neighborhoods. Um, so that's a loss, really a transfer of land wealth because many of these former homeowners were black and Latinx, uh, so a transfer of land wealth from lower wealth folks to Wall Street investors. And 
these firms have been very aggressive with increasing rents. They've been not so aggressive in maintaining the property sometimes and pushing, pushing responsibility onto tenants for basic maintenance, that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, huge missed opportunity. I'd like to ask you about something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that as there was this drive to redevelop places in Atlanta in ways that would attract the affluent, and then, of course, you're describing a whole shift from people of color who had been homeowners, that their houses that were foreclosed on then were gobbled up by these Wall Street-backed private equity firms that then would rent them out. But you also mentioned that as part of this whole picture, that there was a drive not toward low-income housing, but to create parks and trails and so on. Now, I think for a lot of listeners, they might think, well, you know, that sounds okay, right? That's about greening the city. It makes it more ecological, a better place to live, to breathe in, etc. Can you talk about how that could play into this remaking of the city for more affluent residents? Sure. Um, so let me describe the Beltline a little bit because it really is a, a, a key part of the city proper now. And I call it in the book perhaps the, the most transformative redevelopment or urban redevelopment project in the country in the last 20 years. And I think that's a fair statement, at least relative to the size of the city. Uh, there are other projects similar, High Line in New York, which is a much smaller project. Um, 606 trail, smaller project, other kind of rails to trails, but none um, that is as large relative to the city and as transformative. Um, the 11th Street Bridge project in DC that's just kind of in planning stages is another example. Basically, the vision of the project, I think, was uh, good. I mean, it was this idea of a trail with perhaps light rail running beside it um, that would connect people from very disparate neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods to high-income neighborhoods, black neighborhoods to white neighborhoods, um, and allow people to get around without a car um, and provide park space. Those things all sound good and, and are good. Um, and the Beltline and concept I think was a good thing. Um, but it was, as other folks have said, it was captured as a public-private redevelopment project. It was captured and transformed into a real estate project rather than a true kind of parks project. Um, and the park and, and its real value was seen very early on, even before the special taxing district was adopted in 2005. The famous landscape architect Alexander Garvin wrote a report that talked continually about how this would revalue the city, how it would capture a, an attractive market, as he called it. And not once in, in that report was there any concern expressed about gentrification, about displacement, about what the higher property values would mean to lower income people? So it's not the, the notion of green space that's the problem. It's how it's built and whether folks prepare for its likely effects. And I think those effects depend on the form, meaning the city could have chosen to spend the same resources, which is in you know hundreds of millions and going and now in the billions of dollars, both public and private, um, instead of this one large linear park, which is essentially what it is, it's a linear park that encircles the core of the city, is they could have used those resources to build many small parks close to existing neighborhoods within existing neighborhoods, especially low-income neighborhoods, because the city was under-parked, meaning it, it didn't have enough park space. But instead, the idea was, let's attract lots of high-income people to this new place, this new green vision, but also let's allow developers to build right on it 
because then we can capture those values to pay for building the rest of it. And so this, this linear park is not really a linear park at all. It's, it's a, as the New York Times, I'm afraid, called it, a glorified sidewalk that runs through these neighborhoods, but real estate development is built right up to it. And so it's very much a private-public partnership than a public-private one in terms of this clear premium is on drawing real estate value right into this thing. And this all was being built in the wake of the recession right when, you know, 2012 is right when property values started taking off and real estate markets kind of woke up. So we saw tens of thousands of apartments built right next to the Beltline, all of them market rate housing, and many, a lot of retail aimed at upscale customers. Developers started calling it beachfront property. Literally, if you look for an apartment, and, it, and still, uh, after the Beltline, the, the east side Beltline was built, if you went on a multiple listing site or a real estate search site, there would be a box there that you could check that would say next to the Beltline. You know when a project reaches that stage, it's moving real estate markets. It's transforming neighborhoods in a way that makes them real estate commodities and not places for people fundamentally. And that's what the Beltline turned into, I'm afraid. I'm speaking with Dan Immergluck, Professor of Urban Studies at Georgia State University. We're discussing his book about Atlanta, Red Hot City. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you've been describing, since really the 1990s, the gentrification of Atlanta and how shifts took place, displacing the poor from the core of the city and many of them found themselves in the suburbs not the near suburbs but the distant suburbs far away from the kind of public services that would be available in the center of a city can you talk about that shift the kind of diversification of the suburbs and the sorts of attempts that were made many of them quite successful to keep people of color and poor people out of the more desirable parts of the suburbs. Sure. I think I should start by saying, even though some parts of the suburbs are, are quite diverse at a kind of small scale, there is this favored quarter. Many metros have this, a favored quarter uh, of the metro that is to the north of the city. It's bounded by two large expressways, I-75 and I-85, that come in from the northwest and the northeast. And the areas north of those two of those two expressways are majority white, sometimes predominantly white, and quite affluent, higher valued, higher housing costs. And when you say, where do low-income people go? They mostly don't go there. They go to the south especially, which are uh, especially south of Interstate 20, which are often majority black neighborhoods, but they also go to the east and to the west into kind of South Gwinnett County and South Cobb County for folks who know where that is. But the suburbs to the north um, have, have maintained for a long time or increased their traditional tools of exclusion, which I think many people will recognize the term exclusionary zoning when they, you know, basically do not allow for many apartments to be built when it's very difficult to get approvals for affordable housing developments, when lot sizes, minimum lot sizes for houses are quite large. That increases house, those things all increase housing costs. Those things have been going on for a long time. And some cities were able, some local suburbs were able to secede from their counties starting in 2005 and strengthen their zoning powers. They also strengthened their police powers, which can be exclusionary as well. But the other thing that they have done, both the new suburbs and the, the new incorporated suburbs and the older incorporated suburbs in the north, if they've used their redevelopment powers, 
local governments that have redevelopment powers can issue bonds and raise subsidy and they use their planning powers, their ability to identify places for redevelopment and apply these subsidies to build, to rebuild space. And I talk about two suburbs in particular, the city of Sandy Springs that was formed in 2005, that's immediately north of the city. So it's very affluent. It's immediately north of the Buckhead area of the city. Um, and Marietta, which is kind of a middle-income suburb that has seen increased poverty over the last 30 years. And Sandy Springs was seeing some increased poverty. So what they did, both of them, uh, after the foreclosure crisis, is they redeveloped neighborhoods in their cities, in their suburbs, that were the location of a good amount, a large amount, of older apartment buildings, which were lower cost for tenants, and so housed disproportionately lower income tenants, which were majority Black and Latinx. And through these redevelopment projects, they knocked down this older housing and replaced it with what they call mixed-use live-work-play developments, um, which sometimes which involves some housing, but the housing that was built was high-end luxury housing, no affordable housing, no lower-cost housing, and then live-work-play space to attract a higher income and whiter population. So through this, what I call displace and replace redevelopment schemes, through these schemes, they were able to push back on the growing diversity that they were seeing both in their suburbs and nearby to say, no, no, we want to go, you know. In fact, when the ground broke on the Marietta project, uh, the mayor, who's still the mayor, said, this is great. He said, quote, unquote, this, it, it's almost like it's the 1970s again. Um, you know, just the idea that he could return the suburb to its whiter, earlier history. Dan Emigalek, I want to finish by asking you about what what lessons can be drawn from all this for various other so-called hot market metros that have been going through something similar. Austin and Denver come to mind. Yes, um, Austin and Denver are good examples, but also cities that are kind of at earlier stages or or might be prone to this kind of pressure in the next 10 years. You know, I'm thinking like a city like Memphis, Tennessee, which right now is not really experiencing a lot of gentrification, but it has a lot of characteristics that could lead that way. But whether it's more advanced or earlier, I think the, the lessons are similar, which is anytime you do a major project in a city, make sure you plan first for banking some land for affordable housing and resourcing that, putting the money into that first before doing the redevelopment projects that might be park-oriented or it might be, you know, live-work-play oriented. But things that have the power to move markets, you need to plan ahead. Another, another broader lesson is these inflection points. Every time that you pass an inflection point and have made decisions that favor exclusion, displacement, gentrification, it's going to be harder to try to improve things in the direction of inclusion the next time. So the Beltline is a good example. When those values came down in 2010, 2011, and the city was given kind of a second bite at the apple, that second chance, well, because it didn't take it, now we have finally, by 2017, there was a land trust created in the city to acquire properties around the Beltline. And that's good, but imagine how much easier and cheaper it would have been for a land trust to acquire properties in 2011. 
the trends that you've been describing over the course of this hour toward greater gentrification and a certain kind of displacement of people, poor people, people of color from the center of Atlanta to the far suburbs, the attempt by those affluent people in the suburbs to keep people out. Did any of that change under COVID and are there sort of long-term ramifications? Uh, Things have just gotten worse under COVID. Um, You know, values have gone up kind of in most cities instead of just the hot market cities. And values have gone up in neighborhoods that really are not gentrifying, meaning, you know, partly because of construction costs and other issues, um, values have just gone up. Now, some of those values, there are signs that may be coming back down. So even if we saw a decline of 10 or 20 percent in home values or rents, that would still put us, you know, back at a fairly high point because, you know, we had been experiencing a decade of rent and price growth in many cities. Um, So, but things have just worsened. Uh, Everything's gotten worse in terms of affordability and costs. And some of that may again, correct itself a little bit. Um, But I also think it creates a possible opportunity, thinking back to the foreclosure crisis. If values do start dropping, cities, funders need to be ready to mobilize to acquire some of those properties um, because some of them could fall quite a bit. So, you know, if, if property values fall by 10% over a year, that sounds like a lot. But in certain neighborhoods, it could be 30%. Or it could be 20%. Those are the times to really act and put social uh, resources, government resources. We need a federal program to leverage those resources. Um, but in states like Georgia, with large surpluses, A lot of growing cities are in states with significant budget ability, and Georgia's one of them. We could devote some of the five to six billion dollars in annual surplus to buying up some of these properties, especially if the prices start coming down. Dan Immergluck, thank you so much. Thank you. This was really a pleasure. Dan Immergluck is professor of urban studies at Georgia State University. We've been discussing his book, which is a publication of UC Press, Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. And you can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune in again next time.